The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Nice to be here tonight. Some of the folks who were just on retreat are here tonight, too. We just finished the Holy Spirit retreat, and probably some of the other folks in our class are on the seven-day TCBC retreat that Rebecca Bradshaw and Chaz Takapra are teaching out at Kuananiya. Wishing them a good retreat. Tonight, we have the great privilege of talking about samadhi. Those of us who are on retreat at Holy Spirit, uh, these last four and a half days, we spent uh, some of the time reflecting on this particular quality as a as a really powerful, maybe almost the most powerful way to feel safe, is basically to recognize something inherent in the mind and in the heart. And this is different, uh, I think, than our often different than our usual conception of samadhi or concentration or the gathering of the mind, because our normal conception is my mind's pretty wild. And I'll whip it into shape, I'll make effort, and I'll gather the energies of the mind and it will get concentrated. And there's this sense in our mind, a conceptual sense that here's my mind here and the concentrated mind is over there. Um, and so I'm not, I'm not even discussing this in terms of what's absolutely true, but more on the level of what's a skillful conception to have about the mind. And you might find that, like when you're sitting or just at the beginning of a sit, to bring to mind, and actually I think this is good for daily life practice too, not even when you're formally sitting, but just out in the world, to cultivate this idea that samadhi, whatever you've already experienced, with your mind being really settled and stable, clear, balanced, pleasant, whole, that it's here, it's just obscured. And it's it has a whole different feel in terms of how we do the practice if we have a sense that it's here. Like one of the things I've noticed in my practice still I'll notice it to this day, is, uh, it's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get some samadhi. And, uh, you know, so I, I, I do what I'm told, you know, I apply my mind to the meditation object, I connect, I sustain, don't pay attention to anything else. But it's like uh, I'm missing the most effective tool, which is this confidence in the mind itself. Because when I, when I remember that piece, then I might be sort of applying my mind to the breath coming in, the breath going out. But there's also this confidence that's looking around, right, at the mind. Oh, yeah, there's that space, that peace, that stability, that calm, that wholeness. It's always going to be this way, this transition between the so-called med- meditation object and the uh, and using the mind itself as the meditation object. Here's something from a very interesting book I recommend you take a look at at some point. It's called Pure and Simple. It's by this Thai meditation master, this very famous woman in recent Thai meditation history. <laughs> um, she wasn't a nun. Her name was Upasika Ki, and her book was Pure and Simple. And here she has a, here's a couple paragraphs from that book. We gather our awareness at any one point of the breath and keep this up until the mind settles down and is still. When the mind is still, you then focus upon the stillness of the mind. At the same time, you're aware of the breath. At this point, you don't focus directly on the breath. 
you focus on the mind that is still and at the is still and at normalcy you focus continuously on the normalcy interesting choice of words i mean this she spoke in thai but this is the translation right so it's not like something we got to get to out there that wholeness the non fragmented mind is sort of the ordinary mind but it's obscured another image that's used is like the depth of the ocean for the mind but attention that particular part of the mind is really fascinated obsessed with the rippling of the waves on the surface so it's completely the attention is oblivious to the still depth of the ocean because it's so focused on the ripples the movement so that confidence is having a sense of what else is here not being confused by the ripples so let me continue you focus continuously on the normalcy of the mind at the same time you're aware of the breath coming in and out without actually focusing on the breath you stay you simply stay with the mind but you watch it with each in and out breath right so initially you're with the sensations of breathing in breathing out until basically with enough stability or enough um the experience of the mind is clear enough so that the attention can let that come into the foreground the interest in the mind but the breath still can be sort of a supportive tether for the continuity of awareness so you're like i often say when i'm giving instructions breathing in knowing the whole body right so you could say breathing in noticing the mind and when you use uh i'm not sure did i send out the 16 instructions for mindfulness of breathing i thought i did but i might not have but I'll check. Doesn't look like anybody. <laughs> Do you ever open those emails? <laughs> Let me know cuz I won't send them if you don't. <laughs> but anyway, uh the 16 instructions from the Buddha and you can go tonight cuz it's on our web page. You go under resources and there's one of the resources is uh something like instructions for mindfulness of breathing. And a bunch of folks in the community, Nancy Vivian and Robin and myself and a few others have uh, been editing the we put um Gopranso translation of these 16 instructions from the Buddha on mindfulness of breathing and then a lot of the commentaries describing or interpreting each of the 16 steps and you'll see that you know the mindfulness of breathing as a technique that the Buddha taught continues all the way through the deepest stages of concentration and insight it's not like you stop it's just that it's not in the first few instructions it's right in the forefront actually feeling the breath coming in feeling the breath going out but it stays in the general sort of frame of knowing as a support because it it just makes it easier to notice when the mind is lost it creates some structure that helps to hold the awareness together but eventually it becomes less and less important as the nature of the mind either the stillness of the mind the joy the calm the ease the stillness of the mind becomes present or the underlying nature of the mind the changing nature the impersonal nature of the mind becomes sort of the front and center object of awareness So just repeat that last sentence. You simply stay with the mind, but you watch it. You simply stay with the mind, but you watch it with each in and out breath. Usually when you're doing physical work and your mind is at normalcy, you can know what you are doing. So why can't you be aware of the breath? After all, it's part of the body. This is when you focus upon the mind instead of the breath. Let go of the breath and focus upon the mind. but still be aware of the breath on the side you don't have to make note of how long or short the breath is simply stay focused on them upon the mind at normalcy with each in and out breath and we learn that with 
the whole body too. There's one of the characteristics of samadhi is this inclusive quality. So everything is right there when the mind is starting to collect itself. It's interesting. It's not that the mind doesn't hear sounds or that the mind doesn't feel sensations in the body or doesn't see or even doesn't think. It's just a question of what the mind is choosing to have more in the forefront. And that choice should always be what's skillful, right? What supports a settling down and what supports insight, what supports stillness. Because the stillness, the kind of quietness in the stillness, makes it really easy for the mind to notice movement. So if you cultivate, like on purpose, pay attention to the stillness, the unity, the solidity, the calm, if you on purpose pay attention to that, then when there's a disturbance, you're going to notice it, right? Because the contrast really stands out. Here's Ajahn Sumedho talking about body awareness, I think in a similar way. And this is from his book, The Sound of Silence, and it's the chapter on body contemplation. The breath and the body, these are focuses for when we meditate. Now the point of this is nothing more than to be able to recognize awareness, that which is aware of the breath and the body. It's just this. You can't find it as an object. Your breath is an object, isn't it? You can be aware of inhalation and exhalation. You can be aware of the experience of sitting, of your body, the the pressure of sitting on the floor, or the clothes on your body, or the heat, or the cold. So this awareness, you don't create that. It's a natural state of being. With your breath, when you know your mind is wandering, with your breath, when you know your mind is wandering, that you're thinking about something, gently go back to the point on your body where you experience the breathing and practice just sustaining your attention on this rhythm of your breathing. So you notice the difference between an inhalation and an exhalation. Inhaling is like this. Exhaling is like this. They're different, aren't they? It's not preferring one over the other, it's just noticing, being able to sustain and rest in a kind, relaxed, and attentive way to just the breathing that your body is engaged in. And this is the, you know, as I'm sure you know, this is the difficult part, that we have to be so committed and persistent because it's a huge shift for where our minds are concerned with our problems, the world, our relationships, whether I'm a good meditator, right? It's concerned with these things. These things seem so relevant. And it it just doesn't seem right to put them down in order to know the beginning of the in-breath, the middle of the in-breath, the end of the in-breath the beginning of the out-breath, the middle of the out-breath, the, out, the end of the out-breath, or more generally the whole body, or anything that you're working with as a gathering point. That's what we mean by a meditation object. It's a gathering point. It exists, exists as an option or as an alternative to the mind getting pushed around by the diversity of experience because that's what the normal mind will do. It will be, you know, and before I really sort of do something with this object, there's another object that's sort of glittering there, getting my attention. And the mind, in a sense, reaches out, grabs a hold, and then, and that's why energetically, bodily, mentally, we feel discombobulated because that experience, that activity of attention 
is uh, all over the place. So the initial part of the mental training, and this is the persistence, of course, comes from some sense that it's worthwhile to sustain present moment awareness. And remember, it doesn't have to be the same object because even if you're using the same object like breathing in and breathing out, it's not one object, right? Being aware, the awareness, the attention connecting with the beginning of the in-breath is different than when the awareness is connecting with the middle of the in-breath. That's a different object. It's just, you know, I guess you could say it's in the same vicinity. So we're already working with different objects. So if you're sort of aware of the breath, aware of the breath coming in, aware of the breath coming in, aware of the breath going out, aware of the breath going out, aware of knee pain, aware of knee pain, aware of the jet sound, the sound, the sound. You can, the the important thing is that in any moment, the mind is connecting and sustaining, right? So that there's not a, a wavering of the mind. So one of the advantages of having a particular training object like the breath or the whole body, is the mind just gets used to not being confused, not wavering, not doubting, not falling into its thought about the objects that are being known. Right. So it's really just sustaining that present moment awareness. And what is eliminated, what falls away then, is the distractedness. So again, it's not about the multiple objects. It's really about the defilements, the thinking with greed or the thinking with aversion, the thinking with delusion, like doesn't matter, that in a sense pulls the mind out of the present moment. And so the mind is in that disconnected or that misperceiving state fragmented state, confused state. And so in that state, the mind can't collect itself. Let me read a little bit more to the end of this chapter. It's just noticing, just being able to sustain and rest in a kind, relaxed, and attentive way to just the breathing that your body's engaged in. Being at ease with yourself, be Being at ease with yourself. Don't make this into some kind of thing you have to do. It's very important to develop this trust in yourself, in your awareness. It's a relaxed state of being. When you try too hard, you know you're going back into the habits of I've got to, I've got to do this. A kind of a kind of compulsion, having to make this into some kind of project that you have to get a hold of and achieve, right? So then we're in our ideas. So that's the, like, the quality of the persistence and the intention to connect. It's actually one of the causes for samadhi, for concentration, is having the appropriate intention. And this is something we learn about the more we do our practice is how powerful intention is. And, you know, often we do, when we start our sits, we do have an intention. But usually we're not aware of our intention. And often, if we were to take time to really see what the intention is, it's kind of silly, like, to get through the sit. I mean, that's our intention. So, that's what we do. We get through the sit. I mean, how many times have you clearly seen, like at the beginning of a set, like a very clear, pure intention to want to learn something about the mind collecting? Because that intention will affect how the sit goes, or to see something that I haven't seen about the mind. We just like to do things in automatic pilot. So this authenticity or sincerity at the beginning of a sit is really important, like to find an intention that you actually want 
want, intend, wish to happen. And the last couple of sentences here. Meditation is just returning, a kind of letting go of the world instead of trying to get something, just letting go, and then just being. Learning to be at peace and at ease with the breathing, with what's happening now with the body. So as I've been thinking about samadhi, this stillness, right? So this is now the seventh, uh, the sixth of the seven factors of awakening. Mindfulness is the balancing factor. Can't have too much of that. Mindfulness is remembering the present moment, remembering this is being known. And investigation is the mind. It's like realizing there's something like from a place of humility, realizing there's something to know, something to learn, something to pay attention to, to be interested in, to investigate. Energy arises out of the power of investigation, like, oh, I want to persist at this application of mind to the present moment because it seems to be valuable, benefiting how the mind is. And with that, persistent application of the mind, the mind begins to delight in itself, basically. Just it's like the activity of the mind is more harmonious, not fighting against itself. And uh, as that energy gathers, right, the mind being more harmonious, more um, together, we like that energy. That energy sort of delights the mind. And, and part of what's happening there too, I think I mentioned this before, with the joy is as that awareness is more steady, the mind perceives how everything is alive. When we're in our thoughts about things, things appear to be static. Oh, Monday night, I'm at Kamagarn again, and I'm still a bad meditator. I mean, it's like, it, it's such a static vision, and we, because the mind's attached to that, it misses the underlying reality, which is everything is in motion. Everything's flowing, moving, changing. And so as that perception just be, breaks through the crust of our concepts, our addiction, attachment to our thoughts about things, that's also part of experiencing rapture and joy which then leads to the tranquility because the mind begins to feel it doesn't have to go anywhere to be happy. There's a sense of everything I need seems to be here. So that contentedness, that ease, is a sense coming comes out of a sense of trust. And as that develops, then we have this stillness, this peace. And this is where the sort of defining, one of the defining characteristics of samadhi is it's pleasant or it's what the mind wants. Everybody wants samadhi. I think it's fair to say it's, it's really the only beautiful thing, consistently beautiful thing in the world is samadhi, a unified mind. You're looking for a partner. You can do a lot of things, but the best thing you could do is develop samadhi. Because you'll become magnetic. People with samadhi are magnetic. Right? That unification, that stability of mind. We, even if we don't know what it is that we find attractive in the person, it doesn't matter. We're, we'll be attracted to that person. So um, I like to think about it in three ways. This first way I call evenness of the mind. And uh, so we talk about this in the Buddhist tradition. This evenness is, or you could say purity of mind, or you could say balance of mind. So this is a mind that isn't getting 
pushed around by greed, anger, and delusion, or any of the defilements, conceit, you know, impatience, any of the disturbing or agitating habits of the mind, they have receded into the background. So then we have a mind that is now not getting pushed around. So it's pure or it's balanced. And so that mind can then be steady. First it needs to be pure of the hindrances and then it can be steady, meaning it can sustain moment to moment. Because the mind, because greed and anger and the other defilements or torments aren't there so much, then as the mind is aware moment by moment, the greed or the aversion or the other agitating sort of ways of relating aren't operating. So even though different objects might be known, the mind doesn't lose its balance. You, I think many of you have heard the metaphor that I heard from Sharon Salzberg. I'm not sure who first came up with it, but about being on the tightrope. Present moment, it's like being on a tightrope. And we're balancing there. And if we get greedy, I want it, we lose our balance and we fall. Or if we get aversive or fearful, we lose our balance and fall. If we get deluded, space out, fantasize, we lose our balance and fall. But we always land on another tightrope. And then we have another opportunity to either lose it. And so if we're, if there's no greed, anger, or delusion, I mean, I'm not sure, she didn't talk about that part of the metaphor, but, you know, either you don't fall off the tightrope, or, you know, you're on the tightrope in balance, and maybe it gets taken away, but you just land in balance. The important thing is the balance doesn't lose or get lost, get taken away. And then the, then the awareness, like in terms of practicing, then, see the first goal, you know, we have to purify the mind of the hindrances. And that's a lot of work to sort of notice that there's greed operating or notice that there's aversion operating. These are questions you can even ask your mind. Like if you don't feel your mind is very stable, it's all over the place, you know, and you feel sincere, then ask yourself, well, is there greed in the mind, operating in the mind? And then look. That Just that question will like provide a frame that will highlight if you want something to happen, striving, or is there aversion in the mind? That frame can illuminate it. But when those agitating forces are off in the distance, then the interesting thing to do is see, get interested in sustaining one moment to the next. Again, it doesn't matter the object. And the, the real key here is that the objects that the mind is knowing moment by moment by moment by moment are suitable. That the mind can know it. That it's not going to trigger aversion or greed or other hindering forces that the mind, that the wisdom in the mind can't deal with by, well, that's just that. That's just that. Not get confused by any greed or aversion that might get triggered. And then we're really into sustaining. So that's the steadiness. And then once there's enough steadiness, then the feedback loop starts to kick, kick in for samadhi. So that we actually start to feel and see the effects of that purity and the steadiness, and then it can be the object of awareness. So you see the real thrust of the practice shifts. First, it's all about purifying the mind. We're aware of the breathing in, we're aware of the breathing out, but we're interested if we're irritated as we're breathing in and out, or we're greedy trying to make the samadhi happen while we're breathing in and out, right? So then we're purifying, teasing out, using all the different dharma tricks, skillful means we've learned to put greed aside, to put aversion aside. I mean, basically it comes down to knowing with confidence that they don't help, that they lead to stress. And we put it aside. And then the steadiness, you know, the, the object 
is the continuity, is the sustaining of awareness itself, sustaining the present moment awareness itself. It's a little bit of a game. You know, like we're there, we're there. We, we rarely notice when we get lost, but we notice that we are lost, right? Isn't that how it is? Oh, I got lost. And we want to get frustrated, but we know that we've learned by making that mistake hundreds of thousands of times. No need to get frustrated, right? Just begin again. Just notice what the mind's doing. Oh yeah, this is, this is happening, this is being known. And then begin again in the way that you're training your mind, in the connecting and sustaining moment by moment by moment by moment. And here we learn a lot about right effort, what persistence is. Because often what throws this off or two ends of the effort being off, you know, both ends of the effort being off. Complacent, we forget what we're doing, basically, and we lose the continuity of awareness, or we try too hard. And the effort itself causes, it becomes the object, like, I'm trying to do this, and we lose the object, we lose the present moment, because we're in the thought, I'm somebody meditating who's trying to have continuity of awareness. And that's not continuity of present moment awareness. That's a thought, except the mind's identified with the thought. It'd be one thing if the mind immediately knew, oh, that's just a thought. But the mind is lost, absorbed in the thought. It's diluted. So we lose the continuity and have to begin again. So that's a whole sort of another section of practice. And of course, we'll cycle in and out of all these different places in any given set. And then the third is in a funny way, it's also very hard. But it's hard because we have to start stopping doing, right? Because this is where that feedback loop kicks in, where we're starting to feel some of the natural effects of the mind not being diluted, not being agitated, not being pushed around. So the mind, the heart, the body even feels whole and calm and held, or solid, and stable, and beautiful, and light, buoyant, right? So then the work here is remembering just to rest, or just to trust, that those pleasant, wholesome qualities of mind, all we have to do is keep them in mind, which the mind likes. But the hard part is, not doing anything, stopping doing something. Like, like I've caught myself wanting to go back to the breath. As opposed to in, in resting in the experience of the collected mind, notice that the breath is there. The body's there. Everything's there. I don't need to do anything. I don't need to apply my mind or direct my attention here or there or but it's been a habit, so it takes some time to learn to rest in that quiet, whole, peaceful space. And then naturally, either because you'll get it from a book or a teacher or just intuitively, you might, at that point, the mind is really suitable for investigating some of the Dharma themes. Now, we were investigating the hindrances, that's a Dharma theme, and we were investigating sort of right effort with the persistence and the continuity of awareness in that middle stage. But here we can do some of the more classic reflections, and they're just naturally at some point be interesting for the mind. For example, some people have a personality at that more collected stage where there's a feedback loop, and so we're sort of trusting we can just be in the wholeness, in the pleasantness of this quiet state initially. And some people will have the personality to be interested, is there an even more peaceful state, more quiet state? So they might just naturally, intuitively start doing jhana practice, just interested in a more profound settling of the mind. Because that kind of investigation, that in a sense, that doing is really in alignment with where the mind is at. It won't. It will only strengthen that mind. 
right, in wholesome ways, to be interested in, is there a more settled state? This is nice, but it could be even nicer. And so the general um, unfolding of that is from like the earlier states of concentration. You can notice, you'll notice, the mind is very clearly connecting and applying, sustaining itself with the object, right? That's sort of to get to that third stage. And the third, that third place that I'm calling stability of mind, where there's that feedback loop, loop is kicking in, then we're in that more middle stage where there's a lot of rapture, a lot of buoyancy, brightness, and a lot of ease in the mind and the beginnings of peace in the mind. And then further along, the joy goes away and the mind is more perfectly still and quiet and silent and like spacious, open space. But you wouldn't even call it pleasant. It's so quiet, so peaceful, that it's beyond... what, Like even pleasantness is too gross for that more quiet stage. So that's that person or those that time when the mind is naturally interested, could this quiet mind become quieter? But other classic Dharma themes, like impermanence, right? Like to, in that really quiet place, to notice the changing nature that everything is in motion. Like even the body feels empty, uh, empty of sort of solidity. So we, the mind will, that wisdom reflection to con- contemplate the impermanent, insubstantial, fluid nature, process nature of the state itself, of whatever is being known in that state, or the impersonal nature, or the unsatisfactory nature, that whatever the mind takes a hold of, any identity whatsoever is unsatisfactory. The only, like, anything but letting go is unsatisfactory. You can contemplate that, too, in that quiet place. Because sometimes people ask, like, they're in that quiet place and they don't know what to do. Like, I didn't know what to do. Well, initially, you can enjoy it to, to a degree. You can rest in it. So that you're, you're teasing out initially, really teasing out any sense of needing to do anything except trust and relax and appreciate. And then after that's been done enough that you, the mind sort of knows how to just be, how to just trust, then you could, then naturally you could get interested in, can this mind become even quieter or you might be interested in the, the sort of deeper wisdom themes of seeing the insubstantial, changing, impersonal, unsatisfactory nature of whatever the mind might take a hold of. Maybe I'll just see if there are any questions about Samadhi, or even um, some things that people want to share from their own practice before I continue on. Anything come up from the sit tonight? Yeah, Tim, wait, wait for the mic though. I was reading this article called The Four Bases of Power. It was about psychic powers. And uh, it said that it kind of outline that progression you gave where first I'll have the desire to to practice and then I'll find persistence and then I'll really get in touch with my intentions of why I'm doing this and then finally the last was discrimination and I was wondering if you could comment on that well maybe something slightly different than that yeah it's one of the lists and it, it's generally refers, I mean, it's, it's a useful list for anybody, but it's for whatever reason in the tradition associated with people who are interested in developing psychic powers. But it said, like in terms of samadhi, it said that 
uh, developing samadhi gives present happiness, right? So this is this, once you get to the stability of the mind, where the mind becomes aware of the effect of unification. And that is experience is really healing. So that's one of the benefits of developing samadhi, pleasant abiding here and now, right? You can have a rotten day, the world could be imploding around you, but if you've got some time, you can sit down and you can have a deeply satisfying experience. I mean, it's still a worldly experience, but it's deeply satisfying and healing, therapeutically healing in in a lot of ways. You still got to go back to the crazy world, but you feel refreshed. Now, the second sort of benefit is knowledge and vision through perception of light, which is basically which you're referring to, Tim, which is as these practices, the practice of samadhi develops, you may not, you know, maybe very few people develop psychic powers, but everybody who does this, their mind becomes a more powerful instrument. And you know, the thing about, I mean, I don't have psychic powers, but so it's easy for me to speculate, <laughs> but Psychic powers would just be a mind that is really, really, really sensitive, right? And we know when our mind is discombobulated, we don't pick up on too many cues going on around us. We're just diluted. We're disconnected, right? And then when we're more settled, when our mind is more settled, or we've just been on a retreat, the mind is just much more attuned, picks up a lot more than it does when we're, you know, discombobulated. So it doesn't, you know, it doesn't take extraordinary faith to believe that this continuum just continues, you know. So as you develop this, it really feels like a power, like even in ordinary, you know, relatively accessible concentrated states, the mind relative to its ordinary state feels really powerful. I mean, that's one of the things you have to navigate as you start accessing a more resonant, beautiful, calm state is like not to get addicted to the sense of power because it can be interpreted as a personal power. A lot of teachers in Asia, you know, they won't teach concentration until somebody's had some insight into the impersonal nature because they don't it's just a mess when people start getting identified with the beautiful and especially the powerful states of mind that can arise and in the tradition you know there's the story of the buddha's evil cousin devadatta who uh, had really good concentration and evidently some psychic powers even and uh, but not much insight into the impersonal, insubstantial nature. So he took that power personally, right, and tried to take over the Sangha, you know, kind of be number one guy, including a couple attempts at the Buddha's life. So he's he's kind of the bad guy in the tradition. Her poor Devadatta. And you know, in you know, in terms of the legends and myths or whatever stories in the Buddhist tradition, uh, you know, the karma of trying to kill a Buddha, not not good karma. (laughs) So it's it's appropriate to have compassion. And then the other two, well, here's what uh, Joseph said about the second, you know, the knowledge and vision through the perception of light. Because when the mind, it's like the mind. In that world of mind, it's like uh, so much of what limits us in our existence is the ideas, like the, our attachment to ideas. And when one of the characteristics of the mind getting concentrated is it's sort of the, our direct immediate experience seems not as limited by our normal physical 
reality of having a body that's heavy and all that kind of recedes in the background. I mean, for one, the body doesn't feel heavy. The body sort of loses its shape and its sense of weight. It's just like a lot of energy. And in that energy, one of the sort of feelings there is everything's possible. There's just a lot of potential there. Now, I haven't, like I said, I, I haven't on purpose pursued that. And, you know, there are in the tradition ways you can pursue that, but I don't know anybody who who's been practicing that, except uh, there's a famous person you might have noticed on top of our book, or our shoe case, uh, in the our shoe shelf in the entrance, that woman, Deepama. She's also in the, com- there's a picture of her in the community room, I think. And uh, so she was one of the teachers of people like Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg and a few other Western teachers in this lineage. And uh, she evidently had amazing powers of concentration. And so her teacher, Manindraji, who didn't, but who was quite scholarly, you know, he had deep practice, real insight, but not this sort of natural talent for concentration. He started giving her these other, these sort of instructions. There's a point in when you're in deep jhana where you can uh, resolve to develop some of these psychic powers. So... He told her about how to do it, and she did it and had success. And there's a book you can read. It's fascinating. Hold it lightly. Um, the first version was Knee Deep in Grace, and then Amy Schmidt rewrote it, and it's, is it just Deepama? Anybody? Yeah. Just Deepama? Yeah, and so we have, I think, a copy in our reference library upstairs, but you should be able to find it you know, on Amazon or through any of the good bookstores. So Joseph writes, when the mind is not scattered, there is a feeling of completeness and non-fragmentation, which brings about a happiness that is completely different from the pressure, from the pleasures we conventionally experience, right? It's the pleasure of letting go, or the pleasure of not doing. It's not uh, a pleasure of getting. And then the third benefit of samadhi, Mindfulness and clear comprehension through the clear knowledge of the arising, persisting, and vanishing of feelings, perceptions, and thoughts. So this is what I meant, like the samadhi allows the mind on a deeper level. Because, you know, on this level of consciousness, we can kind of get that things are coming and going. Monday night class arose, now this is the middle, it's persisting, and very soon it will be ending, right? But to get it in a momentary way, the arising and passing of phenomena is, uh, it really shifts the mind's relationship to the the world of sense experience. So one of the benefits of samadhi is that we see things coming and going on a deeper level that then allows for this fourth benefit of samadhi Extinction of all the kinkers through understanding the arising and passing away of the mind and body. So the more we see the ephemeral nature, like I mentioned, the mind's relationship to sense experience radically shifts. Normally we think of sense experiences as a place to find happiness and to be burned by unhappiness. But but with that deepening of that insight of the ephemeral changing, rising and falling nature of the mind and body, then the world of sense experience becomes a place to let go of, to not be attached to. Now we can appreciate on an intellectual level and even on an intuitive level that non-attachment makes a lot of sense. But seeing experience on this level, it's like, it's like a, a very natural response, letting go of attachment, not clinging to what people think of me, what's happening, even pain. Because the mind understands the underlying nature of the pain and humiliation, and it understands it's so much more ephemeral than I've been in the habit of imagining it was. These things... If I have a sense that people don't like me, that 
ways as something substantial that I, I got to deal with. But the more we understand the fluid, ephemeral, rising, falling nature, the world, it has a different feel. And you can even get a little bit of a sense of this having come out of a, a deep set where there's a lot of understanding, a lot of quiet, and a lot of understanding. And you'll walk through the world after a powerful set or a good retreat, and it will like look like it's supposed to look, but it will seem different, like more like a mirage. I know it always it's almost a cliche to say it that way, but people I think know. I mean, there are many of you in this room who have had that subtle, intuitive feeling that the world isn't what I've been taking it to be. But the thing is, it doesn't mean we don't play by the rules, although the world is ephemeral, it still operates as it operates. And, you know, in terms of suffering, the beings in the world think they're suffering. So that suffering is as real as anything because they think they're suffering. Just like when we're suffering and think we're suffering, it's suffering, (laughs) right? It's only when that insight is strong or when it's been fully developed, like you're an awakened being, that nothing's a problem. So it doesn't, the interesting thing about that, it's just there, like we would think we wouldn't know how to operate in that world. But it's just not the case. We operate in that world with more compassion and more fearlessness in terms of how we show up. Other thoughts, sharings from your own practice or questions? We have about five or ten minutes left. Time for a couple folks. Experiences of samadhi, what you've learned from samadhi that you'd like to share with the group. Yeah, Sharon. Wait for the mic, though. Um, is this on? Mm-hmm. Okay. I um, I have a question about jhana, and I know I need to read more about it, but um, so the is. Is jhana the very tranquil part that you get to after samadhi, or is it further than that? Well, samadhi is a more general term, right? And so developing samadhi is doing the jhanas. Now, there's a lot of different version of what jhana means, but I think uh, everybody will agree you know, all the teachers will agree that whatever we're pointing to with the word jhana or deeper states of concentration, deeper collectedness of the mind, are these uh, coherent landing places for the mind, let's call them, where the sort of a place the mind can be that has a real coherence, meaning the mind can stay there in a stable way for periods of time. And because that place has coherence, the mind can better withdraw from sense experience. And each of the four jhanas is just a more refined holding place, landing place for the mind, right? And so when you're, when you know that, when the mind knows that map, then the mind can more easily find that place and in that place withdraw from sense experience. So the ears still work, but the attention is so tuned into the mind itself, it's not tuned into sound, not tuned into sight, not tuned into sensation. But everything's working fine, but the attention is just on the mind, just on this place called jhana, or this this sort of resonant, coherent um, space of mind. Yeah. Yeah, Greta, and then we'll end with this. So you're not describing... You're not describing what I feel, which makes me feel like either I'm off the map... (laughs) Um, 
So where does this fit of after the really calm, the the declutter like drops and it's like ah. Oh. Um. What about the connection with all life? What about that stuff, where you might be in walking meditation and that it's not so bounded. There's more connection or when you end the retreat and have to go to the airport and you see everybody and it's like everybody. (laughs) And, and each person is so special and you adore them. Like you, where that's where I go. So I am, am I lost or where is that? (laughs) You haven't spoken about that. Oh no, that's, I mean, uh, first of all, I, I, I didn't spend much time talking about the jhana, just be, jhanas, just because there's a lot of baggage and controversy, not controversy, but just different opinions, and it, it gen, generally triggers attachment. But what I talked about is the work of purifying the mind, the work of developing the continuity, and noticing the feedback. So I think what you're mentioning is there is a feedback when the mind is settled down, and one of the words you could use to describe that feedback is the mind feels whole. But that's not like whole here. That's like whole, everything whole. Nothing outside. Everything belongs. So when we're sitting, of course, we're not aware of the other people so much, right? We're just in our own eternal space. But when we open the eyes and start moving around, to whatever degree that effect of the samadhi or the samadhi continues, then that is the feeling when we walk through space, when we see other people, that normal activity of the mind to fragment, to separate out who's in, who's out, just has been suppressed. It's, it's retreated from the mind. So the mind is moving through the world with more samadhi, more collectedness. And any kind of conception that involves greed, anger, and delusion isn't happening, right? Because it doesn't fit, it doesn't make sense in that mind until that samadhi weakens and fades, right? And if it's not being fed, it will. It will weaken and we'll go back to more ordinary states where, well, that person's a jerk. I don't, you know, I don't want to love them because I, they scare me or something like that. I mean, that's how it is. It's, right? I don't know about that person. But when, when the samadhi is strong, we'll know, it, the fear might be like hardwired into the mind. So that still may arise, but samadhi's not confused by that, right? Because it, because it's so whole, it, when it, when the, any afflictive states get triggered, it's just like, You'll see it with wisdom and compassion. Oh yeah, that's just fear. And you'll understand it, right? Because the understanding works really well when the mind is that whole and settled. You understand why fears are rising, like the karma of it. Well, of course there's fear. Your mind has been conditioned to be afraid when you see someone like that. But that's just the being. They have a sensitive heart like I do. But you don't have to think that. You just feel it immediately, right? Yeah, so that's just the natural result of having done the work of purifying the mind, steadying the mind so there's more continuity, and then getting that natural feedback of feeling whole. So we need to leave it here. It's 9 o'clock. Just take a few seconds. Let go of the words. As I mentioned at the beginning of the talk, just notice the confidence you have in the beauty or the goodness, the wholeness of the heart. And to whatever degree possible, just go right there. Resting there, appreciating. And may this beauty, this goodness, the stability of the heart continue and increase and never end.
Thanks for being here tonight, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.